maybe all hands, maybe. But and then and then dog, dog biscuit, dog biscuit. But on the record, on the record that he gave me a minus two, he said Slater Kinney is no more capable of making a bad record than the Rolling Stones were in 1967. I remember reading so, that. Okay. So you got that's this. ridiculous. So you've got. I mean, you know, you have had this just enormous success, both. You know, in terms of, of this, you know, incredibly dedicated fan base, and then critically, amazingly acclaimed, and you decided to take you decided to take a different mm -hmm. sound. Was that nerve-wracking at all, or? Yeah, we fought the whole time. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, we were crying, and we just Janet and I pushed Corin really far. We pushed, every, we pushed every button, and she fought back, scratching. Yeah, the that's, that's how you get the chorus of "Let's Call It Love." It's, that started out really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's true. It, it, Every it, time it, you push corn, you push her, push her, she hates it, she hates it, and then she makes up something totally amazing, and you're like, see, sorry. <laughs> Had to do it. Very frustrating. Had to do it. But so what, what, you were pushing her to get out of her comfort zone, out yeah. of her traditional? Yeah. Her comfort zone is a lot greater than most people's comfort right. zone, but it still is a comfort zone, you know? Right. She can do anything, you know? It's like anything, and but we don't, we want something just raw especially for that for the woods it, it needed to be raw all the time you know and so so whatever. how did you feel about this <laughs> it was really frustrating um, <laughs> but i think i mean i i think there was times when we all you know had certain ideas that we wanted to to come across on the on the record and right. um and we we did a lot of different things we did a lot of improvisation and a lot of rewriting and editing and going back to the drawing board we threw away a bunch of songs and um, and so I think actually let's call it love was one of the first songs we had written mm -hmm. for this record so that was that was kind of like the bar we came up with a song that was really wild and different right. um, and so we had that as like okay well we've got this really exciting thing we need we need to you know come up with this other material that was right that was really interesting. But so, I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the, the raw, the desperation, I think for most people when they listen to the earlier records, they sound full of desperation and anger and, you know, emotion in that way. But you needed more for, for this, for this, basically? <laughs> well, it's more like the, the desire to progress, right. you know, the, right. the desire to not to not repeat yourself or to, to make something vital and alive, like something we, we sort of were feeling frustrated by, I think, some of our peers who were taking a, a quieter, gentler, um, sort of a more benign approach. And I think, you know, I, I, I always want music to be vital. You know, I want right. it to be scary and dangerous and, and important and not just, you know, background music. Right. You know, for so, cleaning. And so part of this was... <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, so part of this also was bringing in uh, Dave Fridman as producer, basically, who famously said he was not a fan of your earlier records and, uh, you know, you had worked, I guess, with, with only two other people previously. So can you just talk a little bit about what you hoped to get from him and what he delivered or, or did not? <laughs> um, I guess I suggested Dave because I, I saw him speak on a panel, not unlike this one, and uh, he just seemed really rebellious and nonconformist as far as like the world of sound and the world of recording. A lot of those, 
a lot of those dudes are like, you know, the perfect drum sound, the perfect guitar sound, the right. exact, you know, you need this $2,000 compressor to make it sound good. And Dave was like, oh, yeah, I walked by the hearing the playback in the headphones, and I was like, that's the sound, and we just, you know, put a mic right up to the headphone mix, and, you know, he just, he's not interested in the right sound at all, and I think a lot, when we were writing the songs, like, the songs were not, like, you know, coming out in the right way, like, they were, you know, sort of deformed, and, you know, really, uh, you know, kind of strange. And I Did you, was it good having a new point of view, I mean, in terms of just the actual songwriting, or was the songwriting sort of done, and then, and then he was just, you know, while well, he was producing it, basically. Yeah, the songs were mostly done, and we had, I think we had ten songs that we brought in. Ten and a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we finished. I think we finished Roller Coaster while we, we were in there, oh, or maybe What's Mine Is Yours. No, yours. What's Mine Is Yours. Yeah. What's Mine Is Yours. We finished one of them while we were there, but the rest of the songs were done. But he definitely shaped them. Yeah, I mean, he, but he, then he, his process was to come in and say, like, well, why, why are you only doing this part one time? Because that part's really good. I want more of that part. Huh. We'd be like, more cowbell. Oh, you know, <laughs> more cowbell. Lots more cowbell. Um, the, the, Carrie, you said at one point in interviews, you were talking about how, I mean, you know, the first, your first record has, what, 10 songs in 22 minutes, basically. And uh, you'd kind of... You know, and, and that was sort of the Slater Kenny model. I mean, not that short, but but and, but you talked about how you had actually grown frustrated with the short punk song in a sense, the kind of three and a half minute or whatever, and that you you said something about how you liked, you thought that this was a time that required ambiguity and complexity, and you wanted a sound that reflected that. Is that? You, exactly. Is that true? <laughs> well, you said it. I mean, but, but, but can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's sort of a really interesting idea. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, part of the, the urgency on this record was just us finding ourselves again and, and finding a way back into the music. And often, for us, I think that happens when we feel like we have nothing else in this world but our band or our music. And, you know, it felt like politically just in the environment that we were living in that everything was being re reduced to these very simplistic terms and it was either good or bad or, you know issues were black and white and you know I felt like there was that the, the real answer was was ambiguous and unknown and that a lot of the music I was listening to was just becoming so predictable like as you know on the mainstream alternative rock station where supposedly you know all this like punk and indie music was becoming popular and that you know, music that had started out rebellious sounded so safe all of a sudden, and I, you know, and, and very sterile. And uh, then I would listen to the classic rock station, and that suddenly sounded punk rock. You know, all, yeah, all like, oh my God, like, listen, you know, here's a song that is eight minutes long that's being played on the radio, or all of a sudden it, it breaks apart in the middle and goes into a keyboard solo, even though there hasn't been keyboard up until that point, or, right. um, you know, just stuff that's really freaky, and I just, you know, it, I just thought that is the kind of freedom that I, that I want, and I, you know, I want the songs to not have a clear path, you know, I want there to be uncertainty in the music, because that's how I feel right now, and why, is, you know, I just kept thinking, okay, here's this band that everyone's lauding, and I would listen to it, and just feel like it wasn't reflecting anything that I was feeling, you know, I, was, I, I thought that we, it seemed like it was a tumultuous time, and I wasn't, there was nothing to, like, bang my head against, you know, just right. all these soft cushions. 
So, I mean, people need the soft cushion, but we're not there to provide you with that, I don't think. <laughs> um, well, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned the political dimension, and obviously that was central, or it seems central at least, to one beat, and it also seems very important in the woods. And I think that we've always thought of you as a political band. Um, I mean, because of the association with Riot Girl, et cetera. But more recently, <coughs> the nature of the politics seems more, uh, well, much broader than that and, and more explicitly kind of national. So um, can, what's the relationship between politics and music for you? What's the relationship? I mean, how does it affect what you're trying? I mean, you've talked some about it, but how does it affect you at when you're actually trying to write a song? What do you think a song can do politically? I think that that the music that I listened to when I was a teenager was from a, a whole generation of bands that wanted to critique society. You know, I mean, bands like Black Flag and Sonic Youth and the Minutemen um, in their own, in the totally unique ways, you know, like, um, and Patti Smith. I mean, bands that were, you know, the whole idea of not being this conformist member of society, that's what rock and roll to me was was about in punk rock as well and right. you know that's that's the music that I was really inspired by and that's that made me want to be a musician you know so um, so that's kind of the place um, where I you know I think we started writing music from and it still comes from that place otherwise I don't think we'd still be doing it you know right what's it like playing in front I mean you all we talked about this earlier you're playing you open for Pearl Jam and you play to crowds that were not your traditional Slater-Kinney crowd and also presumably were actually pretty, not necessarily politically...